Welcome to the Tales of Mythic Adventure podcast, coming to you from distant shores with your hosts, Jeff and Mob. Welcome to another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. I'm Jeff Richard. And I'm Michael O'Brien, also known as Mob, and we have an exciting episode today. We have the Grandmaster himself, the, the founder, the God King. The original creative force. It's Greg Stafford, and good afternoon, Greg. Good afternoon, Mob. Hi, Jeff. And and once again, we are actually in the same location. Oh, this is spooky. Two weeks in a row. I'm actually looking across the microphone at Jeff. Oh, and Greg. Ah, we're all in one place. I, I do actually have to apologize uh, for Rob, the producer. He is again back in Australia, and we'll we'll type up the episode notes after this. So, so no Rob today, I'm afraid. So today we're recording from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Moon Design Central. Yes, Ann Arbor, which is uh, not very far from Detroit, and also not very far from Indianapolis, where we're all heading in a couple of days' time. Off to Gen Con 2015. And what's going to go on down there, Jeff? Lots and lots of awesome Glorantha and Moon Design goodness. We got board a new board game that'll be demoing, which I think you are. That's Credo, the game of dueling dogmas. Which, uh, Greg, you'll probably remember that from some I, I, time ago. I'm under uh, oath to bring one back with me. Okay, it will be Just done. So you know. you'll, you'll have to take the demo version back. That's fine by me. Because that's the one we have. It'll be warmed up. And we'll have uh, uh, Lawrence Whitaker and Pete Nash from Design Mechanism will mm-hmm. be there showing off uh, RuneQuest and their newest mm-hmm. RuneQuest product, mm-hmm. which I believe is the Adventures of Luther Arkwright. Mm-hmm. Yep. As well as having uh, Mythic Adventure. And, of course, we will be having uh, uh, HeroQuest Glorantha will be available there. Some of the last remaining copies of the Guide to Glorantha can be purchased there. And the new Prince of Sartre comic will be appearing Ooh, in physical form. Three chapters in full color. In glorious color. Yeah. I have to bring that back, too. Uh, we, I think we can have that arranged, <laughs> Greg. So, so Greg, we've we've also got a an award ceremony that's going to be taking place at uh, at Gen Con, the Diana Jones Award. Um, I believe you actually won one of those long ago. Is that at, right? At least one. <laughs> Most recently, I got it for uh, the Great Pendragon campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, Jeff's fact checking you there, and he reckons you've won it twice. At least twice. At least twice. Well, my memory's not perfect anymore, so maybe it was actually three times. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> because the first one doesn't count. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that, that's my rule if you ever get given a glass of champagne. The first one doesn't count. So, of course, if it doesn't count, it's not the first one. So the second one becomes the first one, and it doesn't count. And that's math. It is. That you is. can't argue with that. So uh, the Diana Jones Award, what is in contention? The Guide to Glorantha, the... The Mighty Encyclopedia Glorantica. The book that took me 40 years and new employees to get done. <laughs> Several rounds of new employees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've got a copy of the 1982 Glorantha Encyclopedia. Awesome. Uh, which is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, boy, the number of times this thing started up. And fell down. Fell down. Started up again. Yep. Fell down. But then the Guide to Glamrantha, it's it. It is. And, you know, it occurred to me, Jeff, you're probably the only person in the world other than myself who has actually read all my Glorantha notes. 
I fear that is true. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what it, I guess what it, what it took to finish the book. That, that would have taken some time. It, it, that's the reason the Guide to Glorantha took, um, I'd say it took a good solid two years to write working on nothing else. And then the scariest thing was, despite cabinets of notes, despite going through my indexed email archive of uh, almost 20 years of correspondence between you and I, despite <laughs> that, there are areas with just gigantic, or, sorry, had gigantic blank holes. Well, that must have been the play, the areas I was saving for game masters to set their campaign. Like the entire southern continent. <laughs> yeah, like the entire, <laughs> or, or, or what was the, uh, what was the old blank land? You mean Ballastar? Uh, there were, no. Garsting was a Garsting? Garsting? The, 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 the one you wrote for. Yeah, yeah, I filled that in. Yeah, Garsting. I, I remember, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the, our first encounter, right? That is going back to when your uh, offices were in Oakland, I remember. We're out with all the uh, motels with hourly rates and all the other things that were <laughs> oh, in, the, the, good neighborhood. in the neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to think what year that might have been. Maybe about 1992 or something. Something like may that. Have, may have appeared there. Dates, wow. I don't know. That's, that's going back some time. It is. A lot of water under the bridge. So the... Uh, the guide, of course, is not only this enormous encyclopedia, it's an enormously heavy encyclopedia, too. I'm saying that if there was an any award that's coming up for heaviest uh, product of the year, it would probably be in contention, wouldn't it? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I was just looking at the uh, Horror on the Orient Express boxed set. Oh, and now that, that is an absolute <laughs> whopper as well. Actually. Exactly. Yeah. I don't actually know which one weighs more. And, of course, Sandy's uh, Cthulhu Wars. Cthulhu Wars, yes. It's absolutely. pretty heavy, too. I mean, we got a lot of. There's a lot of heavy product. We're going to have to do another volume for the uh, Glorantha Encyclopedia just to hold that title. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. What's it? Eighteen pounds? It's. I think it's. Um, I think each one is three is four kilos each. So Two I think it could be. Two. It could be almost I, just I, under I twenty. I just know that the shipping of this thing is the shipping charges are pretty high. Yes, yes. So that's why you want to go to, if you're listening to this and you're going to Gen Con, grab your copy and save that shipping cost. Yeah, yeah, take it home in the car. You can buy an extra game by just saving the (laughs) the shipping cost. (laughs) Two games, easily. (laughs) Nicely put. So, so Greg, um, just tell tell our listeners a bit about what you've been up to in in recent years. Uh, I have been busy on two main products. One is continuing my support of the of the Pendragon line, mm-hmm. uh, which is done by um, Nocturnal Games, uh, because I love Pendragon. And uh, and you actually won a Diana Jones Award for it, apparently. Uh, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just filling in some blanks, because there are a million of them uh, coming out with products. Uh, erratically because I refuse to work on a schedule. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing I've been working on is my book. It's actually now become Books Concerning Oaxaca, Mexico. Uh, Suzanne, my wife, and I moved to Oaxaca in 2002, and we lived there for two years, and I just became totally entranced and enthralled by the place. What I say is I, I discovered I, one of my souls is, is Oaxacan. 
Uh-huh. And 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 I've been back a number of times, and I and I love can you, the place. Can you just situate this for us? Where sure. is it in Mexico, and what's what's it about? Oaxaca is a state in Mexico, and it's far south, uh, almost in Guatemala. You do have to go through the uh, state of Chiapas to reach it, but Oaxaca is the poorest state in Mexico. They used to have uh, a contest every year between. Chiapas and Oaxaca to see who was the most poor. But since the Chiapan Revolution, when the Zapatistas came into power, they got a lot of money. So now Oaxaca has the award permanently. Uh, They didn't get a paved road into the capital of the state until 1985, I think. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and the, the state is about half indigenous people. And that's why it's at the bottom of the bo- uh, bottom of the the political chain. The state is used by the Mexican government as a training ground for corruption. <laughs> and uh, you know, when somebody new enters into and promising enters into the PRI, uh, they send them and they get them hooked up in Mexico to learn how to uh, graft, and then they move up into more important and richer states. When they've developed um, their full grafting skills and get certifica- certified in corruption. That's right. And and they do, uh, and uh, so it's uh, the result of all this is that the state is quaint. You know, I, we can't glorify uh, poverty, but it's full of colonial artifacts mm-hmm. uh, from the colonial times. So it's a very very beautiful place just to sit in the in the zocalo and have a beer uh, and watch what's going on. But out in the mountains, it's all indigenous people full of ruins. And all mm-hmm. my life I've had it. Uh, uh, I love visiting ruins. And so it was a great place. To isn't go. isn't Monte uh, Alban? Monte Alban is the uh, is the number one ruin there. I've been there 13 times now. Uh, we're planning to go back in December. So it'll be at least 14 times. And, and where, where do these ruins come from? What what period? The, the ruins are from uh, mostly from the classic and pre-classic area uh, era of the Zapotec Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oaxaca actually has 10 or 12 different indigenous tribes in it. But the two largest are the Zapotecs and the Mixtec. And the Zapotecs occupied what's now Oaxaca Valley during the classic and pre-classic times. In fact, the post-classic too, of course. But uh, they were the ones that built Monte Alban. Monte Alban was the first state, excuse me, the first city in North America. Uh, mm-hmm. It was uh, the second largest city during the Classic Era when Teotitlan was... Teotihuacan? Teotihuacan. The Aztec capital? Teotihuacan. No, no, no. Teotihuacan. No, Teotihuacan. Yeah. Teotihuacan was... No, not Tenochtitlan. No, that's a, that's a different one. That's the Aztec. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, so it's a place full of history and uh, full full of archaeology and and uh, little little lacking on all the myths and stories. Mm-hmm. The Spanish did a pretty good job of burning all the uh, ancient documents there. But for instance, of the codex codices that uh, are extant, half of them are from Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. And so there are there are a fair number of Oaxacan uh, codices from the Spanish period. Well, uh, from the actual pre-Hispanic uh, codices, is probably six. Okay. And uh, then they have a whole bunch of documentation called lienzos, which are land titles, and they would they would make them, uh, draw them out in 
on, on these gigantic pieces of cloth. And mm-hmm. uh, by gigantic, I mean like 10 by 12. I saw one that was probably 20 feet by 12 feet. <coughs> wow. And they, yeah. And they, they would draw their, their territory on it symbolically mm-hmm. and uh, with, with all their uh, name glyphs and everything on it and have little stories, you know, where you can see the footprints of the people migrating around. Really wonderful stuff. And they have a lot of lienzos as well. Well, that just sounds absolutely amazing. I'm, 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 I'm envious. I spent a, a little bit of time a couple weeks ago at uh, Mesa Verde uh, and the Ancestral Pueblo people, which mm-hmm. are remarkable. And whereabouts is this in the U.S.? Too? This is in uh, northern New Mexico, northeastern Arizona, southeastern Utah, and western Colorado. It's called the Four Corners area. Right. And uh, uh, the, the Ancestral Pueblans are also called uh, uh more popularly called the anasazi and and apparently it is generally preferred by the locals to call them the ancestral pueblins since anasazi is a i believe it's a it's either a navajo or an apache word that means ancestors of our enemies right oh, enemy which, ancestors it's navajo yeah and uh so they and since they're the the pueblin indians ask that their um earlier culture not be called by the Navajo term. Right. What are they called? Exonyms. Exonyms are the yeah. curse in Native America. Uh, because everybody, almost all the names that uh, are used in America to name American tribes are bad words. Yes, from they, outsiders. They, yeah, from outsiders. They would stop and they'd say, what do they call the people over uh, next door? And they say, oh, they're the people that eat snakes or they're the people uh-huh. that have sex with rats. And they said, okay, we'll call them the sex with rats people. And they... Because you're asking your translator, hey, mm-hmm. hey, Sacagawea, who are these people? That's right. Well, these that, are... That's a bit like, I believe, the uh, the Australian <clears throat> Aboriginal word kangaroo uh-huh. means, I have no idea what you're asking me. <laughs> <laughs> or the English word Avon. Uh, the, the, there's three Avons in England, you know, and uh, it's Celtic for river. Mm-hmm. So they have all these places, these three places. They're the River River. Yeah, the Avon River. Well, this is yeah. like river. the problem with uh, Don, Danube, Donal. Uh, there, there's a... Dona. Dona, yeah. there's a, a early <laughs> Indo-European root word that just means river. And you go across Europe and the number of rivers that, that translate to directly to river. Yeah, that's right. What is this thing over there? It's a river, idiot. Okay, this is a river idiot now. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, up where I live in, in Northern California, there's a town called uh, Lolita. So uh, when it when the people there, uh, the last Indian uprising in America was in Northern California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when they were just about uh, exterminated all the uh, Indians, there became in America a, oh, let's save the Indians. They're a wonderful people movement. And in one of these towns, they decided that... Uh, they would rename their town to the Indian name. And they asked and went down and asked, you know, the friendly Indian down in the square. They said, What's the name? What did your people call this place? And he said it was uh, Lolita. And they said, Okay, we're, we're going to be Lolita. What he didn't tell them was that lo- Lolita means let's have sex. Oh. And so <laughs> now there's this <laughs> town in California, let's have sex. Yeah, and and for those of you involved uh, who are wanting to do fantasy world building, this is a useful 
instruction about naming things yes. is most place names in the world are not as exciting as you think they might be, or often more ridiculous than you think they might I'm, be. I'm going to ask you a question about a name, because this came up in our last uh, podcast. We were talking to Neil Robinson, and on his first ever journey down from uh, Victoria to the RuneQuest Con that was held in San Francisco... He knew it was going to be a great RuneQuest con because they drove past the sign to a town. Went, they thought that was a, a good sign, a good omen. And the town was called Yelm, <laughs> Y-E-L-M. And it's uh, just out of Tacoma, which is just a little bit down south of uh, Seattle. And uh, we were speculating in uh, last week's episode whether you'd ever driven past that town or that was an influence or it's a complete coincidence. I, I believe that they named the town after the sun god, I, after they became Glorantha. I think fans. Ramtha. I think Ramtha. Uh, had oh, it the is name. the home of Ramtha, Ramtha. yes. The, uh, oh, the, the channeling yeah, uh, J.C. Well. Knight's uh, group there. Well, then that's, it's certainly that they got it from Glorantha. <laughs> well, in actual fact, it's an Indian word. I checked this. Uh-huh. Um, because I actually went down and stayed with some friends who live in Puyallup, which is just near there, and... Uh, uh, part of their family is Native American and work in the casino that's there. Of course. And uh, I was talking to him about it, and uh, I looked it up, and it is a Native American word, and it is related to the word dawn. Ooh. Well, clearly, Glorantha exists in the uh, collective unconscious. Well, it certainly does now, you know. Uh, when I first saw Glorantha, you know, I really liked, I don't, consider myself the creator of it but the uh translator and uh, you know i i thought i made it i made a short story i i had run out of books on mythology to read can, so we, I st- can we just go back when sure. was this Give 1966 wow yeah i m- probably before most of you listeners were born <laughs> and uh i had to write a st- i had run out of books to read <clears throat> so I said, I'll write a few. Mind you, I'd never seen Tolkien or any any fantasy fiction in my life. And I wrote a little short story. Then I wrote one page. Then I wrote a short story. Then I said, i got to explain the background. And I have to explain the background to that. And now I have to explain the background to this. Background to this. And suddenly it was like a vision. And I could see all of Glorantha in front of me. And uh, I said, wow, this is awesome. And... I had a thought, and, and it was, I'll never be able to write all this myself. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a staff of people who understood it well enough that could do it and contribute to it and do their part? And astonishingly, that ca- came true. And, you know, I, I'm probably one of the few people in America who made his living off of his college vision uh, of, of another world. Which is pretty awesome. It is well, and I think the the really cool part about that is not only you, you got other people who could share in the same thing. Like J.R.R., he was sitting in his study writing it himself. Mm-hmm. I, I know his son um, occasionally came in and took stuff out of his waste paper basket, but right. um, really it was all down to him. Yeah. Whereas uh, it has been a collective effort, and you look at the uh, guide to Glorantha, there are a, there's a long list of uh, contributors that have. Uh, that have helped in that, and, I, and I'm very gratified for that. Uh, I I loved the the vision I had of it, but the fact that other people have picked up and be are part of it 
is really, really important to me. And um, I'm glad, because that was actually part of my vision then. Now, one question I have of being the possibly the only person other than you that's had to read all of the notes. And you probably know more about those notes than I do. The <laughs> question I have is, why did you type it on that weird size of paper? This has been a question I've been really... You, you, you mean 8.5 by 11? No, you typed it on 8.5 eight by 16. They're all on these Oh, 17. 17. That's what? legal size paper, yeah. Jeff. I know it's legal size paper. It's probably what I had on hand at the moment. Do you have any idea how hard it is to find a place to store? Oh, or you can't fold it up properly and put it in a drawer with the other files. It's really irritating. <laughs> so I've got I've got piles, stacks, as organized as it can be made, of eight and a half by seventeen inch paper. And my wife long has wondered why the weird size she was trying to ask is this a popular size for things in the united states it's no more popular than lawyers are but I, uh i i was a practicing lawyer for 10 years and <laughs> oh i didn't know that. <laughs> oh i forgot you yeah. forgot that right <laughs> oh but, yeah you know, so sure like, did. as a practicing lawyer i never used legal size paper well, that's it's why so you had to ask. It's so inconvenient. Yeah. You can't store it anywhere. Well, I just figured it was a way for the paper industry to uh, get a little bit of the market from lawyers. They would, they <laughs> would have this type of paper, and they'd have, a, have to always go to the same paper company to get it. And then they probably crept the prices up until it's a ridiculous price. But I must have gotten it for free when I used it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Greg, uh, the Guide to Glorantha is... Is is the masterwork that came out in, uh, in in the last couple of years? If we go all the way back to 1966, this was done as uh, your notes on these very strange pieces of paper. What what was the first product that actually took Glorantha to a a wider audience than say just your circle of friends? Probably it was the magazine, the fanzine called Space and Time. Uh-huh. Where I had my first Glorantha story published. Oh, I I have never heard of this. Tell us. No, more. it's a it's a rare rarity. Uh, there are collectors out there right now writing this down, going, "Hmm." That's right. Uh, well, the story was recently republished uh, in an anthology of stories about uh, by probably Peregrine Press, and it was a volume of stories wor- from from worlds that were. That people wrote, wrote about their thing, mm-hmm. and um, in those days it was a fanzine, and the, the, there were a lot of us in those days where people were writing and publishing their their works, and because we couldn't get it accepted uh, professionally, so these were full of second-rate, crappy writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my first book was in one of those. It was Space and Time by Gordon Linsner, and uh, uh, out of New York City. Uh, for a while, I published one myself. It was called Weird Magazine, W-Y-R-D. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I inherited that magazine from, uh, from the people who started it. And I ran it for five or six issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, a really interesting thing to point out here is that Glorantha predates role-playing games. It predates it as a board game or, or anything else. So it really was a literary, imaginary creation before it was situated in something that people could play with dice or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, and I think that that's one of the reason, things that adds to its uniqueness or its weirdness, if you would, uh, and why it's just not like other games. It was not designed for a game world. I, each game that I've made was one way of exploring the world, mm-hmm. almost through a different medium. And the first one I ever did was a board game called White Bear and Red Moon. Mm-hmm. And I had sent in a short story to one of these fanzines, and I got back a rejection letter that said, don't send me this crap. All fantasy is the same. And I and I was infuriated. I said, no, it's not the same. God damn it. And I walked around in, in Albany stewing and cooking. And uh, there's a little hill in Albany, uh, El Cerrito. And the town next door is called El Cerrito. But mm-hmm. the hill is in Albany. And I went up. I, I cr- went up the side of the hill, straight up, instead of zigzagging on the roads. And I got up to the top, and uh, and that's where the dragon was. It spoke to me in, in my early writings, and it said, uh, "You're right. It's not all the same, but you have to discover a way to present the story differently." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to make a game." And so I made my first game. And White Bear and Red Moon is uh, a, a, a an epic waiting to be played because it gives you the setting. And it gives you the characters. And when you play the game, it's the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are, the, of course, the components for liter- for a literature. And uh, I published a couple of board games first. And then when I discovered role-playing, I thought, this is a much better vehicle for uh, producing what I want to do. And uh, I started putting it together in a game way. I met uh, Steve Perrin. Uh, through a series of series of people, I was actually at a at a party at a place called Gray Haven, where Paul Anderson and Marion Zimmer Bradley uh, and Diana Paxson all used to go. Uh, and I was at a party there, and somebody said, "Oh, you're the guy that did that did that board game. My friends want to make a role playing game out of it." And I said, "You mean like D and D?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, I'm sorry, I, I think D&D is illiterate. I, don't, uh, I can't really get into it. It would have to be a different game. And he said, they feel the same way. And so I... Boom, kept, the rest is history. And huh? the rest is history, role-playing history. Well, g- going back onto White Bear, Red Moon, if, if I recall, originally you were even thinking of it not being set in the world of Glorantha. That's right. Originally, it was not in Glorantha. By that time, I had 10 years of Glorantha writing, and it was just a a coincidence at one point that I thought, wow, this will fit perfectly into Glorantha in this blank space I have. (laughs) Because previously, there was nothing about Sartar or the Lunar Empire or the Holy Country or Prax in your earlier Glorantha writings. Absolutely correct. And I did that because I didn't want I, I didn't want to have to readapt everything to a board game, and I had the board game developed since I had been playing uh, war games since 1962, and uh, so I, I I recognized the board game as a good format to do this in, and uh, said I'm just going to adapt my board game to Glorantha rather than ad- adapt Glorantha to a board uh-huh. game, and and it fit. It fit perfectly well. Uh, it is also where I made up, uh, excuse me, where I discovered the Lunar Empire. Yep. And, uh, you know, in a way it came about, the Lunar Empire and their, their weirdo magic came about because I wanted, because I had a cyclical magic in the board game. And I said, well, that, well, that fits. We've, 
not done that before. I had just, of course, read a whole bunch of new mythology, and I said, this will fit in, in uh, the Lunar Empire. And, uh, and, and it became the Lunar Empire. So, yes. so how did you throw in the Crimson Bat? I, there's a couple units that I actually have never asked you the, the origin story of it. But the Crimson Bat, what was the inspiration of that one? Oh, probably some desperate hangover or something. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) A lot of these ideas kind of pop into my head full-blown, which is why I don't feel like I I created it, but but why I envisioned it, or I, mm-hmm. you know, Discovered some people it. might say channeled it. Yeah, and and that's not a, an entirely incorrect idea, except that it's uh, I don't like the idea of channeling. But um, and the Crimson Bat was one of those. I wanted to have a, a movable glow space, just because it would uh-huh. be very strange in the game. And uh, then the moon moon developed out of that. Excuse me, the bat developed out of that. Okay, so Greg, we're, we're going to wind up for today, but we always end with our MGF questions. Are you ready right. for them? Sure. Okay, Greg, can you tell us something that everybody knows about you as a gamer? I'm sure everybody knows that I uh, first discovered Glorantha, that I've written the best role-playing game in the world, which is Pendragon, and that I'm the founder of Chaosium, which uh, is the leader of... Uh, of, of role-playing games and fine games everywhere, especially back while I was president. <laughs> okay. What about, uh, what does everybody not necessarily know about you as a gamer? Uh, well, I own the first copy of Dungeons & Dragons ever sold. Oh, you got to tell us this story. Uh, all right. Uh, I used to work uh, for a, a, a belt buckle company in, uh, l- out of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. That's where the manufacturing was, and so and by an amazing coincidence, what started in Lake Geneva, yeah, Wisconsin? This is incredible. That's right. That's where um, TSR began, and uh, just by coincidence, of course. But uh, when I had moved out to California and I was r- working on my first fantasy board game, uh, my a, a fellow salesman from the company went in to pick up his latest catalogs from the printer, and he was sitting there. And uh, there's some other guy waiting for his printing. And my buddy Jeff said, you know, what, what are you waiting for? And the guy said, oh, I made a fantasy game. And Jeff said, you know, I got a friend in California <coughs> who's doing Let me buy one from you. And he said, yeah, sure. And so he actually bought one before Gary Gygax had them in his hand. And, uh, and he, he got this first copy in the brown box and sent it to me. Uh, and, and I owned it. And I tried to read it and said, I don't understand this. It's not very well written. No offense. Oh, this is another story. Is when I told Gary that. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll save that, folks, yeah. for another episode. Yeah. Anyway, the first D and D ever ever sold. That is such an amazing story of serendipity and coincidence. Absolutely, awesome. <laughs> and I, and I checked with Gary because sometimes my memory may play tricks and I said yeah, really so and he said yeah I remember that scrawny <laughs> guy and the in the uh, yeah I sold him one and so before we go into the, la- the last two questions whatever happened to that copy do you know yeah I lent it to a friend uh, he never returned it imagine oh. that yeah 
this was the guy that taught me how to play D&D. I actually played it briefly, uh, and he, he needed the book, and I lent it to him and never got it back. Oh, what you lent it to him back in the 70s then? Oh, yeah, right when it was brand new, in 1975 or six. So you, had, you briefly possessed the first ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow. So, Greg, tell us, what, uh, what do you do better than the average gamer? Game master. Mm-hmm. Uh, I game master almost entirely on the fly. I have the in, I just have the information in my head, whether it's for Pendragon or Glorantha, and that way I can adapt the story to in the creative context of what the with the players to make the game. And uh, I'm I'm very well read, so I have a lot of potential plots and mm-hmm. and uh, and the background is is important. So I I would say that that's what I do better than anyone else. All right. So what about worse? What do I do worse than anybody? As uh, a gamer. As a gamer, of as course. A gamer. Of course. Well, when we were playing role-playing games back in uh, at Chaosium in the old days, there was uh, a system that we used to judge and gauge players' interaction. Mm-hmm. And we said, you know, a perfect player has a number one. Okay. And you want to have about five to seven points total. Mm-hmm. And when I was a player, I was usually a f- between four and six because I would just be rules lawyering or trying to come up with something clever and funny and distracting everybody from the game. So I'm often a very bad player. You're down at the other end of the scale. I was at, uh, yeah, I was at the... I took up the space of four to seven people. Okay. That's what it means. So, Well, Greg, we're going to have to wind up uh, today's discussion. It was fantastic to have you on well, Tales nice of Nice to Mythic see you guys, Asia. too. We would love to do this again sometime, All maybe right. even sometime soon. soon. And uh, we'd, we'll sign off. So this is Mob from Tales of Mythic Adventure. And this is Jeff Richard. And Greg Stafford. Tally-ho to all. Adios. No ducks were harmed in the production of this podcast, but several baboons had their feelings hurt. 